This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. By any measure, the SEC Whistleblower Program has been a resounding success. In a recent press release announcing a whistleblower award, Chair Gary Gensler underscored, quote, the important role that whistleblowers play in helping the SEC detect, investigate, and prosecute potential violations of the securities laws, end quote. He also noted that the assistance that whistleblowers provide is crucial to the SEC's ability to enforce the rules of the road for our capital markets. As the SEC's whistleblower program has grown in stature, and as it attracts more and more whistleblowers to come forward, companies have had to grapple with the program's implications. How can companies encourage internal reporting? How should they triage tips? How should they treat whistleblowers or suspected whistleblowers? We're very fortunate to have with us today on the show Jane Norberg, a former chief of the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower. We're going to talk about the SEC whistleblower program and what it means for corporate compliance today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's always good to be with you, Chris. Uh, This is going to be an awesome episode. I know it already. We've had some really good conversations with Jane leading up to recording the episode. Uh, I'm excited because the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower has been incredibly busy in recent months, doing in no small part to the framework that Jane left behind when she left the SEC a few months ago. Uh, So it's going to be exciting to talk about how things are going at the Office of the Whistleblower whistleblower to talk about some rules amendments, but really what we want to focus on today is something a little bit different than what folks usually will hear about when we talk about whistleblowers. And that's kind of looking at more of the compliance side or the cultural side um, that companies have had to create or adjust to as a result of the whistleblower rules and programs. Jane, of course, has been on the other side uh, and seen where a lot of companies get it wrong from time to time with respect to their internal reporting structures or otherwise. And so I'm just excited to learn from her about uh, how companies can do better, how they ought to be building out their programs. But anyway, Chris, I'm I'm definitely getting ahead of myself here. Uh, why, why don't we step back? Tell us a little bit about Jane. Yeah, just to echo your comment about how busy the office is, Kurt, I've had to really rethink my automated email alerts from the SEC as it relates to the Office of the Whistleblower. I feel like I'm getting pinged a few times a, a week, maybe too many from the commission, but we'll save that uh, email etiquette for a different, different conversation. Yeah. On to our guest, Jane Norberg is currently a partner in the Securities Enforcement and Litigation Practice at Arnold & Porter. As we mentioned before joining a and Jane served as the chief of the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower for five years, and prior to that as deputy chief for many years before that. In the Office of the Whistleblower, Jane helped build and develop the SEC's whistleblower program. She advised the SEC chair and the director of the Division of Enforcement on emerging whistleblower issues. She helped develop SEC rulemaking and policy for whistleblowers. And under Jane's leadership, the SEC received record numbers of whistleblower tips and paid out record-breaking awards. Now at A&P, Jane advises clients on all aspects of whistleblower matters. This includes helping companies navigate the complexities related to whistleblower reports and issues of all kinds counseling companies on best practices for handling internal whistleblower reports, proactively assessing and mitigating risk, conferring with respect to emerging whistleblower issues, internal and external investigations, advising on best practices related to retaliation and potentially impeding reporting to regulators, assisting the company in its response and defense to specific whistleblower allegations, and providing crisis management to mitigate reputational risk. Kurt, sounds really easy to me, right, when we talk about all of those issues, (laughs) but we're very glad to have Jane on the show. Jane, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you, and I'm very excited to be on today to talk to you both. 
Yeah, and we should note that congratulations are in order, I understand, Jane, that you have recently uh, been shortlisted by GIR as one of the investigations professionals of the year for your work uh, as the chief of the Office of the Whistleblower. Uh, So congratulations, uh, hard-earned and very well done. Thank you. Thank you. I just learned about it yesterday and I am incredibly honored um, and and really excited by the nomination. Yeah, congrats. If there's any way that being a guest on Insecurities can help with the uh, the <laughs> approval process, Jane, please let us know. We'll be happy to send yeah, it out. <laughs> As a reminder to our listeners, whistleblowing and, and the topic of whistleblowers has been visited by the Insecurities Podcast on previous episodes and some of our most popular episodes. You'll remember on episode six, very early on, Kurt, in our podcast journey, we spoke with Matt Stock of Zuckerman Law, (laughs) who helps represent individuals in their their quest as as whistleblowers, as well as speaking with Tom Muller, the investigative reporter who wrote a book, Crisis of Conscience, uh, Whistleblowing in the Age of Fraud, that we profiled last November in episode 26. So we don't need to rehash all of the ins and outs and technical aspects of the program. Kurt, I'm going to challenge you to do it all in 90 seconds. Give us a background on the program and let us know what uh, what we'll be talking about today. Whew, you know, I promised to give a background and I knew you were going to stick me with some kind of <laughs> ridiculous gonna... time limit. So I've got the time cap running, Kurt. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, so again, go back, listen to the old episodes if you want all the details. But um, sort of just as a reminder, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act directed the SEC to create a whistleblower program that rewards individuals who provide the agency with information about possible securities laws violations. The core objective of the whistleblower program is to motivate people who know of securities laws violations to come forward and to tell the SEC. Under the SEC whistleblower program, an individual may be eligible for an award if he or she voluntarily provides the SEC with original information that leads to a successful enforcement action in which sanctions of more than $1 million are ordered. In such a case, the whistleblower may be entitled to receive between 10 and 30% of the total amount collected, although as we'll learn, the SEC may have recently grabbed a little wiggle room for itself in the awards department. Importantly, whistleblowers are not required to report possible misconduct to their employers in order to qualify for an SEC whistleblower award. And that really is going to tie in with some of the things we want to talk about with Jane today. Um, Whistleblowers are, however, required to report to the SEC in order to qualify for certain anti-retaliation protections that are available under Dodd-Frank. Something else we want to talk about, uh, the principal provision there is SEC Rule 21F-1. 17A. We try not to do the rules too much, but there there it is. Um, That rule broadly prohibits any person from taking any action to prevent an individual from contacting the SEC directly to report a possible securities law violations. In practice, it has prohibited all kinds of, of conduct where employers try to prevent current or former employees from reaching out to the SEC through things um, like separation agreements or non-disclosure agreements or confidentiality agreements. Uh, To date, the SEC has brought approximately 14 enforcement actions against companies in situations where they think the company was really trying to restrict an employee's ability to to go to the SEC. Uh, There was a really interesting case about a year ago that's still working its way through the courts where um, the SEC actually brought an action against a company that sought to restrict uh, it's investors from going to the SEC. So not an, not a current or former employee. Really interesting case to watch. It's called Collector's Coffee. Uh, and, and maybe we'll hear about that from Jane. But so that broadly is, is how the program works. Uh, it has been wildly successful. Uh, and just to give you an indication of how robust or how successful the program is, the Office of the Whistleblower now consistently receives more than 5,000 tips per year. Uh, and I think Jane will tell you that requires an awful lot of work and a lot of long hours uh, for the staff trying to to triage or to get through those tips and, and figure out which ones are worth pursuing. Uh, the SEC has received whistleblower tips from every state. It has received whistleblower tips from 123 countries. One year, they received tips from 70 countries in a single year. 
Uh, and the SEC recently hit an incredible milestone. Uh, just this week, the week that we're recording, uh, the SEC announced that it has now awarded more than $1 billion with a B, dollars to whistleblowers, uh, in fact, to 207 individuals since it issued its first award in 2012. As we said, Chris, the news just keeps on coming this week. We've seen, uh, I think, a $40 million award um, out of the SEC that was coupled with $70 million in a, in a related agency action. Uh, minutes before we got on with Jane, the yep. SEC announced another $11.5 million award. So, it's very successful. It's very busy. And I think I went longer than 90 seconds, Chris, but that's just that, a tad, but we'll sorry, let it slide. Sorry, it's the best good info. All right. But let's, uh, enough, enough of us. Let's, let's hear from Jane. Uh, Jane, as, as we mentioned up top, we've said a couple times now, uh, for a number of years, you, you were the chief, you were the head of the SEC's whistleblower program. Uh, tell us a little bit about how the program evolved during your time as chief. Yeah, thank you. And and Kurt, I have to say that was an incredibly good summary. Uh, very thorough. <laughs> What's interesting is I've, I've been involved with the program since almost the very beginning. Um, I started as a deputy chief in the office. And so I've seen the program grow from a really small, small office where it was just me as the deputy chief. Sean McKessie was the first chief of the office. And we had four four detailees from other parts of the commission. We didn't even have like real like people <laughs> who were dedicated just to our <laughs> office. Like we were allowed to borrow people um, because we just had no idea if the program was going to be successful at the time. I mean, there were certainly high hopes, um, but, but we really didn't know. And so we really had a very lean staff at the beginning um, and definitely borrowed on other resources. And, you know, we really anticipated and kind of and kind of sweated it out until we paid that first award because we knew that that would be the marker that everyone was going to look for as to whether or not the program was successful like when do you pay somebody what are you paying them and how is that going to look and so there was a lot of excitement when that first award got paid back in 2012 just a little over the year a year after the office opened so that's record time when you think about that um and so that was a really exciting time for us. But then, of course, then became, uh-oh, now when are we paying the next one? And, and you know, you started to just, like, live award to award. But by the time I left, right, I mean, we just had it down with, with paying out awards that, that, as you mentioned, they're now flowing out of the SEC on, on what feels like a weekly basis, which is, which yeah. is um, a, a good thing that um, the awards keep coming out. Um, you know, the, the tips I think you mentioned before – you know, started um, promising, but then just really grew year after year after year. And if you look at the SEC's annual report to Congress, um, you can see year after year how the tips have grown, especially during fiscal year 2020, when the pandemic hit and the whole world was sort of forced into lockdown mode. Believe it or not, the SEC just saw this this surge of whistleblower mm. tips come in. Um, and that, and that was actually really interesting to think about why that, why that might have happened. And I think you're going to continue to see this, this increase in tips. So then I took over as chief. And one thing that became clear as the program grew was that we were getting in a lot of whistleblower award applications. And in order to keep incentivizing whistleblowers to put in tips, we knew that the awards had to keep getting paid out. And, um, so in the, in the year or two, you know, right before I left the office, that was my whole, goal, my whole focus was really revamping and taking a look at how we were doing things internally in order to push out awards quicker. And what you're seeing now is really the the, the fruits of all of the work that um, my team did to, to really revamp the whole system. And it was definitely a collaborative, collective process um, by the Office of the Whistleblower team. Um, and I just, you know, as I mentioned, them hitting this billion dollar mark um, in whistleblower awards is just an, ama- an amazing accomplishment for them. And Absolutely. so happy to see that the awards awards keep coming out on a regular basis. 
Yeah, one of the major evolutions in the program actually occurred in the past year with what we'll call the amendments uh, to the SEC whistleblower rules. The nuance and, and the detail here is very important, but just to summarize briefly, better defines the terms whistleblower action, monetary sanctions, and some other terms, uh, cemented the SEC's authority to exercise discretion in determining the amount of an award a whistleblower receives, which deviates from that popularized uh, 10% to 30% range of certain cases. Uh, the amendments also create a presumption that for awards under a $5 million ceiling, uh, which actually comprises about 75% of all the awards paid to date, the whistleblower will potentially automatically receive that maximum uh, discretionary award and address some procedural issues with award applications and processing, uh, as well as looking at interpretive guidance uh, related to retaliation and the meaning of the term, quote, independent analysis. And again, we cover some of that on previous episodes in terms of what all of that might mean. But the SEC uh, says the amendments were designed to enhance clarity to whistleblowers and improve the program's efficiency and transparency. But as we've seen this year, uh, new commission, some new commissioners and some new thoughts. Uh, recently, Chair Gensler has indicated that the commission may revisit those amendments. And recent uh, articles conclude that the SEC is, quote, stepping back, end quote, from the amendments, and that the commission is beginning its, quote, reversal of Trump era changes to the whistleblower program, end quote. So, uh, Jane, it seems like we went uh, up in terms of amendments in detail uh, last year, and we may be going down in, in detail or some changes there. What do you think about these amendments and, and what's going on in today's commission? So I think you're seeing a very pro-whistleblower chair doing everything mm. possible to incentivize whistleblowers to report information to the commission. Yeah. The two amendments that that he referred to in his statement were amendments that were objected to by two of the commissioners um, when they were voted on in December of 2020. So um, the First Amendment is the amendment that was widely reported as potentially allowing the commission to lower a dollar amount of an award in certain circumstances. And then there was the other amendment that clarified that a separate law enforcement or regulatory action could not qualify for a related action award if there was a separate whistleblower award program that more appropriately applies to that action. Just to give you an example of that second piece, so... There's the SEC whistleblower program, but there are also other federal and state whistleblower programs that exist and that are cropping up, honestly, um, on a fairly regular basis. But one that's existed for a while is the IRS whistleblower program. So let's just say a whistleblower gives information to the SEC, and then they also give the same information to the IRS. And both agencies are able to bring actions um, based on that same information. The, the thought is, is that the whistleblower could get an award from both the SEC and the IRS under their whistleblower programs. And what the SEC said was, well, we're not going to, to double pay. We, we can't also pay you on a related action award if you can already get that money from the IRS. And so that was the purpose behind that amendment. So I, I'm going to be interested to see what the commission proposes when they do propose uh, uh, amendments to these rules. So what the, you know, what the chair said was that he was not only instructing staff to review and recommend revisions to the rules, he actually took it a step further and issued a statement that clarified how the agency will review and address the issues now from this moment on until the rules are proposed and open for public comment and then voted upon. So he took the, the unusual step of publicly announcing how the SEC was going to interpret the award applications now, even before the rules were proposed, um, you know, which, which in my view, again, kind of sent this very clear message to whistleblowers that this is a new, very pro whistleblower chair. But interestingly, in response to commissioners, um, that were appointed by the prior administration and who who were who voted um, on the rules as well, issued their own statement that took umbrage with the new procedures that the chair announced, saying that they nullify standing commission rule under the guise of agency procedures. So you can really see the pull from both sides here, and it seems that there is a little internal strife over how this was handled. Mm-hmm. 
So setting aside the amendments for a second, are there other trends, Jane, or, or developments with the whistleblower program that we should be looking at uh, today and going forward? Yeah, so I, I would point out two or three things that I would note that go along with the same theme of this being a very pro-whistleblower administration. Um, I, I would note that there were some recent orders for whistleblower awards where the commission very liberally interpreted the rules in order to pay a whistleblower, including through the use of um, its exemptive authority under Rule 36A. And this is something that has been used in the past to waive certain procedural requirements that might otherwise have resulted in an award being denied. But it is something to watch for under this administration, because I think you're going to see more liberal interpretations of the rules in order to pay more whistleblowers. And then I would also say to be on the lookout for more whistleblower protection cases under this administration, both in the anti-retaliation context and the Rule 21F17 space for impeding an individual from reporting to the commission that, that Kurt, you had mentioned earlier. This is one area I would anticipate may pick up steam under the new administration. Um, the SEC has not necessarily been as active as they could be in, in this space in the last several years. Um, and, and Kurt, you had mentioned the Supreme Court case of Digital Realty versus Summers that really did reduce the number of cases that the SEC could bring enforcement actions on in the retaliation space. That said, I do think that this administration uh, you know, may be very active in this space with respect to cases that do fit the guidelines, meaning that the individual reported to the SEC before the re uh, retaliation took place. And so I think that's an, um, another area to watch. And in addition, Kurt, this is something else you alluded to, the, the cases regarding impeding an individual from reporting to the commission, I think that's another area to watch. And you can see the expansion of these cases in this area. And two recent cases come to mind. One that you mentioned, Kurt, the um, collector's coffee matter, where district court recently held that whistleblower protection rule extends to shareholder documents. And then another case, a recent case, was against a broker-dealer where they settled charges regarding language not in severance agreements, which is what a lot of companies sometimes think about when they're thinking about this language, mm -hmm. but this was actually language that was in training materials and in a compliance manual. So it, it, it makes it incredibly important that companies do very thorough, very broad look at their internal documents, not just separation agreements, but every document that has terms that they're asking someone to be beholden to, whether it's an employee, a contractor, an investor. Um, I mean, the SEC will certainly be looking at those documents. So it's really important that a company does it first. I think we can agree with following those trends going forward, Jane, but I, I just got to pull back a little bit. You said Kurt was right a lot in that answer, and I, I'm going to have to disagree with that going forward. Oh, come but, on. Uh, I know Kurt did his homework. <laughs> Every once in a while, buddy. Uh, sorry you had to be here for that. Uh, it happens. It's a perfect segue, Jane, actually, because, you know, we do want to talk a little bit more about how companies should be thinking about the SEC's whistleblower rules. Um, I think we did. It was important to talk about what's happening at the SEC. Uh, we did that, I think, as, as quickly and as thoroughly as we need to. But I, I really am interested in this point about internal reporting and internal investigations and uh, this sort of intersectionality with the SEC's whistleblower rules. I mean, I remember when the rules first came out, I started immediately getting getting calls. Uh, from partners in the firm and from clients to say, you know, what are we supposed to do with this? How how do we build a program around this? Are you serious that they don't have to report to us first? And like, what do we do with a whistleblower? Uh, so it's an important conversation to have and one that I don't think people think through or talk about quite enough. Uh, Jane, you've you've been on both sides of this now. Um, at the SEC, you undoubtedly saw cases where companies got it horribly wrong. Uh, their internal reporting systems may have been ineffective, or they they tried to track down or, or openly retaliated against a whistleblower. Uh, maybe they didn't take prudent steps in, in connection with an internal investigation. Uh, now that, that you are in private practice, you get to help clients figure out how to navigate some of these tricky issues in investigations involving whistleblowers. Um, but I, I want to sort of start at the beginning here, um, thinking about internal reporting. 
Are there things um, that that companies can do to really encourage internal reports? Are there are there any hallmarks of an effective internal reporting system? So I would say making sure that internal reporting mechanisms are robust and clear is incredibly important. If whistleblowers are not comfortable and confident in the internal reporting mechanisms, they will not use them. That That's very clear to me. Um, and reports are not necessarily coming in the way that companies might think. I think a lot of companies rely on hotlines to capture a lot of the information, which is a good thing, right? There certainly should be a hotline um, set up in, in companies and, and give whistleblowers, internal whistleblowers, the ability to report anonymously if they choose, if they choose to be anonymous. Um, but, you know, a lot of times the reports are coming directly to, to, to middle management. So I guess a couple of things to think about here. Companies should be thinking about how they're promoting and advertising the reporting mechanisms to their employees. So a lot of times things are kind of buried in a whistleblower policy, but if it's not, you know, sort of, sort of put out to employees in, in, in a campaign, right? An internal reporting campaign. Like I always hearken back to the, if you see something, say something campaign, right? That was so brilliant. <laughs> right. And I still, you know, that was like, it feels like decades ago, right? That that came out, but it's still <laughs> something that you, you repeat, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and so having just like an important and employee-friendly promoting campaign can, can make a big difference. Um, you know, and with the, with the rise of some very attractive whistleblower incentive programs, both nationally and internationally, the chances of a regulator or law enforcement already having a tip um, on the same information that a company is reviewing internally is, is, is quite high. Um, so it really puts pressure on making sure internal reporting processes are clear, that there are proper controls in place so that the information gets to the right place to be triaged. Something that I've talked about with, with clients over the years is, you know, in addition to just kind of building the right, the right framework or systems, are ways to incentivize people uh, who, who think maybe there's been some violation of the of the law to report internally because you know as you know Jane the co- the company would prefer to know about it first right in an ideal world the whistleblower will come to you before they go to the SEC or another agency so have you seen incentives that work really well um, or, or or maybe have you seen <laughs> incentives that just don't work at all. Uh, for companies that are trying to to build out a program, you know, incentive wise, I think having a a culture of compliance, right, where where being compliant is viewed as as a good thing. Reporting wrongdoing internally to a company is something that's viewed as a positive and not a negative is incredibly important. And and it it doesn't only mean sort of like talking the talk, right? But but a company also has to walk the walk. So. Um, you can have the best internal reporting campaign, say the, say the most positive things to employees. Um, but one, one misstep by a company, right? Uh, the company say potentially trying to track down a whistleblower who was anonymous or treating a whistleblower, an internal whistleblower in a way that that whistleblower perceives as very negative, right? That will get around the company very quickly. And, and that w- can tank um, the uh, company's ability to receive those internal reports. I, I mean, look, I can think of so many instances when I was the chief of the office of the whistleblower, where whistleblowers told me that they report it to their supervisor, but the supervisor didn't handle the report in a manner that the whistleblower found to be satisfactory, which then prompted them to report to the SEC. And this is where I think companies could benefit from you know, taking a really good look at their internal reporting structure to make sure that all reports, not just those going to the internal hotline, are captured, triaged, and investigated if appropriate. So that's a lot about 
about sort of culture and and how to create uh, or foster an environment where whistleblowers feel, I think you said, comfortable and confident in the reporting structure and in actually, you know, reporting things internally. You know, I've I I'm aware of companies that do some some very specific things to incentivize whistleblowers. I've I've heard about companies actually sort of publicly praising whistleblowers uh, for coming forward with credible information about something that was going wrong in the company or promoting individuals um, who uh, who report misconduct because I think the company's view is we we actually want to encourage and reward that kind of good corporate citizenship. I know uh, Tom Muller told us, and he, uh, he's probably told you too, Jane, but like he thinks it would be great to hire whistleblowers and, and publicly hire whistleblowers to send a message to the employees that you know, not only do we have a reporting system in place, but we take this seriously, and um, we would encourage you to tell us if you think something's going wrong. So I don't know if you have thoughts on those kind of specific things that companies can do, uh, or, or how that that fits into the way you think about incentivizing reporting. Yeah, it's actually a really great question, and you know, I think done right, some of the things that you mentioned. It could actually uh, incentivize internal reports and show others within the company that if there is something that they're seeing wrong, um, that that speaking up will actually lead to to good things and not retaliation or or something worse. Mm-hmm. And so, celebrating um, internal reports or someone who has pointed something out and has potentially saved the company money or did an improvement on something. I mean, those are all things that I think could be celebrated in a way um, that that does encourage internal internal reporting. Of course, on a case by case basis, right? Because you may have have someone who reported internally who does not want that public recognition. I mean, um, maybe they would be okay with their boss, you know, recognizing them privately, but, uh, but, you know, publicly there might be uh, some individuals who, who may not want that. So I, I would, I would think about that on a, on a case by case basis. Yeah, it's a great point. We talked a lot about the number of reports that the office of the whistleblower received 5,000 in a given year. I mean, that's, that's more than 13 a day. So it sounds like uh, Jane, your original uh, skeleton crew of borrowed resources would probably be a bit overwhelmed uh, with the current uh, the current tip load coming in, but that sits the same with with companies with their internal hotlines. Um, you know, having been a professional who has worked at managing uh, hotlines and reporting um, review, I know it's a sticky wicket. Uh, a lot of times, you'll either get a lot of reports that that don't require follow up, or many reports that do require follow up. How do you see uh, that reporting structure at a company? Uh, utilize a, an intelligent triaging system through internal audit, through their legal team? You know, what structures have you seen around how to deal with those reports that's really effective for those companies? It's a great question. And, and you know, a lot of it depends um, on the facts and circumstances of the company. Obviously, different sizes of companies um, might have different, you know, triaging mechanisms. But, you know, one, one thing I did want to point out is, is, you know, I can think of many instances while I was the chief in the office of the whistleblower where whistleblowers told me that they report it directly to their supervisor, but that the supervisor did not handle the report in a manner that the whistleblower found to be satisfactory, which then prompted them to report out to the SEC. And, and this is something I just want to point out because I think, um, Sometimes companies, you know, rely a lot on their hotlines or other sort of very formal reporting mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily where whistleblowers are reporting. I mean, in the, um, in the SEC's annual report to Congress in fiscal year 2020, it was noted that of the individuals who received an award from the whistleblower program, which means that their information was specific, timely, and credible enough for the enforcement staff to bring an enforcement action based on that information. So meaning it was good information. 84% of those individuals said that they report it internally to someone at their company, um, either before they report it to the SEC or at the same time. And so that's an incredibly high number. And, and, and so what that means is that 84% of the time, right, in the majority of cases, 
the company, somebody, somebody at the company had that intelligence, had that information. Um, and, and, you know, potentially it was a direct supervisor of the individual who didn't even recognize, right, that they had, that they just received a tip because a lot of times whistleblowers are just going to talk to their boss. I mean, I think one, one thing we have to think about also is I'm using the word whistleblower, right? Because that's, that's the, the term that's used by the office of the whistleblower. But in reality, it's an employee talking to their boss, right? Putting aside the word whistleblower, which I think people have a very specific connotation in their head of a whistleblower, right? Somebody who's kind of blowing the lid off of some huge, huge issue. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just an employee walking in, telling their boss, Hey, I'm looking at these financials and something doesn't quite look right, you know, and it's just a simple conversation. Um, or at least the, the supervisor views it as a simple conversation that they're having with an employee. But the, but the, but the employee views it as something much larger than that, but doesn't, you know, kind of, doesn't kind of come in with all like the, the, the red flags and, and, and big formal report. It's just a conversation. And so I think training at the middle management level to ensure that those managers can identify an internal report when they get it. And then more importantly, know what to do with that report. So it's captured by the company and acted on. So I do think that that's a missing piece in at many companies and, and something I thought a lot about based on my conversations with whistleblowers. Um, you know, from the whistleblower's perspective, they told someone at the company, you know, namely their boss about this issue. And if managers are not trained appropriately, this information can be lost and not captured by the company. And look, not, not every tip is going to lead to a large scale internal investigation, but certainly every tip should be triaged to determine what steps are appropriate because it gives the company an incredibly important head start to identify, investigate, and correct an issue if needed before a regulator or law enforcement reaches out. And it also allows a company to determine when to self-report. So having that um, centralized triage mechanism is incredibly important, but also making sure that the information, wherever it's coming in, in the company, is getting to that centralized triaging mechanism yeah. can sometimes be just as much of a challenge. Yeah, and that's similar to how uh, you know accountants and internal audit professionals will advise their business, right? Is, is tell us more than you might think you need to, right? On the conservative side, is report more things than than you might imagine. You know, Kurt, you and I have talked about a client that I worked with a few years ago who uh, was bragging about being a ten thousand employee uh, outfit that had zero hotline calls in the most <laughs> previous year. I mean, I think you're just the signs with the hotline number had the wrong number printed on them, right? That's not a good uh, uh, status to be yeah, in. Just a very compliant organization, no doubt. Chris. That's right. They said they only hired the best right. people. Uh, apparently, the best people didn't know how to use the hotline. But I think, Jane, you're, you're absolutely right that getting the information in the system to be dealt with from the company perspective is a major hurdle to get over. But it's a lot easier to sift through the reports and say, OK, I like to use the phrase, this is the John stole my lunch type complaint that's coming into the hotline. It doesn't need a full-scale investigation. It's not a major issue. It might be more HR than anything else versus, you know, I, I've been seeing some financial reports that don't look right, and I feel like they're impacting our standing and, and what we're representing to investors. That might be the other side of the spectrum. So capturing that information is, is the most important part. I agree. You know, Jane, you you dropped one of my favorite statistics uh, in, in responding to Chris's last question, and it's it's this idea or, or this statistic, I guess, that um, you know, eighty four percent of the individuals who received a whistleblower award reported internally first. Uh, and, and that feels really high. You and I have actually kicked this around a little bit before on a DC bar panel a few months ago. Uh, you know, I, I think w what I see is um, the fact that that 16% of the time, or, or maybe even more, uh, companies aren't managing to attract a tip internally, right? And, and that's not a huge number, but I think about it, that's almost one in five whistleblowers who got an SEC award. So like one in five people whose information was credible enough to lead to an enforcement action didn't tell their employer first. Uh, maybe that's just what we should anticipate. But I always think maybe there are things that, that companies can do better to, to attract internal reporting. It's an interesting way to flip that stats and think about it that way, right? Because 84% 
for 84% to me is incredibly high for internal reports, given that when the program was first put into, in, into, into place, um, companies were very upset and saying, we want, you know, internal reporting mandated um, before, um, you know, someone can report out to the SEC. And of mm. course, that's not the way um, the rules are drafted. Internal reporting is not mandated. But, you know, to me, 84% is incredibly high for someone to report internally. But I, I, t- I take your point that 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 still means that there's 16% of the time people aren't um reporting internally and and why and why is that and you know one thing i would just add to that is during the pandemic that number i think it'll be interesting to see the the reports on this maybe a year from now hmm. um because the sec had this huge surge of tips during the pandemic and i have seen reports that um that that showed statistics that internal reporting was down um, at companies. And so hmm. up at the SEC, down at companies, right? And, and so something flipped, right? So something flipped here. And that is going back to our point about how do you encourage internal reporting? That is something companies need to really think about now with, um, the, the current workforce, right? So we have people who are starting to go back in person. We have people who are going to be hybrid. For the time being, and there are people who are going to be fully remote. And honestly, I don't know. I, I think the landscape of work from home and in-person work has changed, honestly, yeah. probably forever, right? So um, anyone who thought that this was like a temporary thing and things would go back to normal, you know, soon, 18 months later, I think we can all say, <laughs> okay, maybe it's not. Yeah. Um, and, and, but because of that, I, again, I would encourage companies to take a look at their internal reporting mechanisms to make sure that people who are sitting at home have a way to report or feel connected to the companies, right? You know, feel connected to their coworkers and their colleagues because I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's some study around the psychology of this, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm sure when people are in an office with somebody and they really like their colleagues and they like their boss and they like the work they're doing, that that helps them get comfortable reporting because they they want to help their team and they want to help the company, um, but being remote and not feeling sort of part of the part of the fold or part of the team, um, or is connected to your company, I think that does impact whether someone reports internally or whether they report out. And so I think really thinking about that dynamic and making sure you're 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 capturing. Uh, I guess, capturing tips from people who are remote or hybrid, but also figuring out how to encourage those tips to come in and and having those people feel comfortable with the reporting mechanisms, even though they haven't been face to face for a year and a half. I think that that is that is a challenge for companies. Yeah, I, I would agree. So, so we've talked a little bit about building the systems and we've talked a little bit about triaging the any tips that come through. Um, so now let's imagine that we are in this this eighty four percent. Okay, so uh, we're we're in a scenario where a company has received a tip. Uh, they believe that it is credible, uh, credible, and warrants further investigation. Walk us through some best practices for companies in developing an investigation plan where the company knows there is a whistleblower. Uh, or, or alternatively, I guess you could tell us uh, some things that a company absolutely should not do when they know there's a whistleblower uh, or, or some common pitfalls. But what, what should folks be thinking about? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the first things I think a company needs to think about is whether to bring an outside counsel or to conduct the internal investigation. Yes, yes, they should. Themselves. They absolutely should. <laughs> <laughs> Knew he was going to say that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and 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 you know, we're 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 joking about it, but it's actually a really important decision, right? Um, because you know, there's always the the cost of things, right? It's obviously a, there's a cost factor, um, and there are times that companies can conduct certain investigations themselves. Um, or just have outside counsel guide them. But in other instances, depending on the allegations, I would say that it becomes incredibly important to bring an outside counsel to show a thorough, independent investigation free from, um, you know, un- unintended biases. And, you know, the, the company always needs to view initial steps and really, really, I shouldn't say initial steps, but, but really the whole 
internal investigation through the lens of a, of a third party? How would the adequacy of the internal response or, or lack thereof be viewed by a regulator or law enforcement if they came in later? Um, you know, another thing I would mention is that if you do have a whistleblower who has identified him or herself, meaning they're not, they're not anonymous, um, making sure that you have regular, um, outreach and touch points with the whistleblower is really important to the extent that you possibly can. Acknowledging the fact that someone has put in a tip and, um, and, and keeping them up to date to the extent you can. Again, you, you can't share everything, obviously, with the whistleblower. But but having that person feel feel heard and valued is incredibly important, and that will you know help the internal investigation and will potentially prevent outreach to regulators by by that individual. Um, and I would also say is that if you do have a whistleblower, making sure that um, the company, uh, um, especially the managers, are very cognizant of retaliation protections. Obviously. Retaliation training should happen on a regular basis at companies, right? This shouldn't be something that happens after a whistleblower surfaces. This should be something that companies have um, training on retaliation on a regular basis to management, especially middle management, where a lot of these uh, um, employees are reporting directly to. Um, one thing I would also mention is that if you have an employee who's not performing well, you really need to document it in their annual reviews as it happens. If a company waits to document performance issues until after an employee reports a possible violation, it's gonna be seen as a red flag by regulators and the company will need to show that any action taken was not retaliatory. I conferred heavily on every retaliation case that the SEC brought to date. I should say to the day I left the SEC, and, you know, that that was something that was important, right? I mean, because if the timeline is important, if someone reports internally and you take a look at their performance reviews prior to that internal report and every every year they're getting really positive ratings and reviews and bonuses, but then they report something and then all of a sudden their performance goes down and they're, they're now the worst employee on the team, right? Something happened, right? Something happened. And that's, and there might be an explanation for that, but it certainly will raise a red flag, um, and potentially get, um, an investigation started, you know, by, by the SEC into those allegations. And then another thing to be cognizant of is that, that Exchange Act Rule 21F17 that we mentioned regarding attempts to impede someone from reporting to the SEC. Um, if, if you have an internal whistleblower and that person, you know, does leave the company and there is any kind of severance agreement done, just making sure that the agreement does not contain language that's going to be viewed as, as impeding that person from reporting to the commission is incredibly important. Um, again, I conferred on every single 21F17 case brought, I have reviewed hundreds of agreements and the language in those agreements. Um, and, it, and it really is a nuanced thing and just making sure that there's nothing in those agreements to that that could be viewed as someone impeding someone from reporting, especially someone who you know, right, mm -hmm. has information, <laughs> has information about a possible securities law violation. I mean, that that's also certain that you have to be even more careful in those instances. And then finally, I would mention, because we're talking about it in the context of an internal investigation, um, think about the Upjohn warnings, because that was also a case that was brought, right? A 21F17 case brought. The very first one, in fact, was because of language in an Upjohn warning. So you have to think about the language that's being used and make sure it protects the company and all of its privileges, but also doesn't impede reporting to an outside, outside regulator. And it sounds like the some of the great best practices and, and war stories almost, Jane, from your experience when a, a company knows 
uh, that they've received an internal report. But to take that flip side, and, and listeners will be happy that I did check Kurt's math at 84%. Uh, you know, the flip side of that is 16%. So great job, Kurt, uh, for exceeding expectations on math on today's podcast. We needed an accountant for that one. <laughs> that's, hey, I, I got to validate myself at some right. point here. So um, let's say that you're you're working with a company that has found out that there is no return internal report, but they suspect that uh, an individual has reported directly to the SEC. Uh, you know, you've talked a lot about kind of the best practices of how to treat a whistleblower when they report internally. What differences or what nuance is there when a company suspects someone has reported to the SEC without reporting internally first? Well, let me let me start with the premise that the company should always <laughs> assume that the SEC has a tip, um, especially especially if there was an internal report. Because mm-hmm. um, look, look, the, the SEC's program is incredibly strong. It has the three very attractive incentives of confidentiality, anti-retaliation protections, and of course, the um, eye-popping monetary awards, right, to incentivize incentivize reporting, um, and and so. The likelihood that the SEC has information already um, makes it all the more important that the company do a thorough job investigating the allegations and documenting the outcome and one st- you know and what steps, if any, it took it took in response. Um, this way, if the SEC does begin an investigation and starts asking questions, the company can show there was a thorough, um, independent, and reasonable investigation that was done. Now, you know if if the company believes that there's a whistleblower and there was no internal report, I mean, the one thing I will say is don't try to find out the identity of a whistleblower, right? That That's that's never a good thing. I cannot think of any scenario where that is a good thing for a company to do. Um, in fact, there was a case brought by the SEC against a company um, where I believe they were charged with retaliation and Rule 21 of 17 violations. And in that instance, um, there was a lot of activity internally around trying to figure out who a whistleblower was. They assumed that the SEC had reached out because of a whistleblower. And they were, you know, questioning employees about whether they were whistleblowers or who do they think the whistleblower is. And and it just created such... um, an atmosphere in a company, right? We were talking about before about encouraging internal reporting. This would have the exact opposite effect, right? I mean, because you you would you would live in fear, right, of <laughs> of your boss finding out and and then having to go through this at, at work of you know someone trying to trying to track you down. So that is one thing I will say is that even if you suspect a whistleblower, you receive no internal report, you suspect a whistleblower. You're better off not not knowing, honestly, because for for the reasons I just mentioned, and also if you don't know who the person is, um, you can't be accused of retaliating against them, right? So to some extent, it, it it insulates the company from retaliation, because you don't if you don't know who the whistleblower is, then the company you know could not have taken steps because they reported a possible securities law violation. So if you look at it that way, I think that helps the company not to know. All right. So we've been talking about all the things companies should be thinking about. And Jane, thank you for so many good sort of practitioners points in there and um, for sharing with us some of the things you observed while you were at the SEC. Uh, Like I said earlier, I think it's incredibly important for for folks to have this conversation and think about how they can do better internally, whether that's because they're really happy about the 84% or, or trying to, to narrow that 16% to get a little more capture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to remember, too, that the SEC's whistleblower program, it, it's not the only game in town. And Jane, you, you alluded to this earlier. There are a number of programs at other agencies uh, around, around the country and various state programs where whistleblowers may be able to report and, and get some kind of uh, award. Um, you mentioned the IRS earlier, Jane. I, I immediately think of the CFTC's whistleblower program uh, for for a couple of reasons. I always remember it because when their rules first came out, a number of them had been copied uh, a verbatim from the SEC's rules and, in fact, referred to the SEC in their own rules. That got cleaned up in the final rule, of course, but I, I did think it was a little bit funny. Uh, w- one of the places where they actually differed from the SEC was this double pay restriction that you were talking about earlier, Jane, which is, you know, th- the SEC said, look, if you get paid somewhere else, we're not going to pay you 
the CFTC, however, was like, hey, we're happy to have you. So if you want to report to another agency as well, um, please please feel free. Uh, but I, I don't know if there are any other uh, whistleblower programs out there that you would highlight, Jane, um, either because companies need to be aware of them or maybe whistleblowers need to be aware of them or because there's some weird interplay with the SEC. Yeah, well, you mentioned the CFTC's program, and you're right, that is the that is the, the sister program to the SEC. They, they both were formed out of the Dodd-Frank Act, so at the, at the same time. Um, and so it's a very similar, similar structure and setup to the SEC's, um, to the SEC's program. I mean, I will say that there have been a lot of new whistleblower programs that I have seen cropping up. Um, one I think that's, that's notable is the anti-money laundering whistleblower program yeah. that incentivizes, um, whistleblowers to report possible, um, AML BSA violations to, to treasury. And that program based on the, the legislation looks like seems to be largely mirrored after the SEC's program. Yep. Um, so a couple of things I think I would note about that, about that program is that, that the legislation is enacted and it's, a, it's a live whistleblower program, but the rules aren't passed yet. And, th- and this happened with the SEC's program as well. Um, and, and I called it, I used to call it the gray period, right? Because it's kind of what it is, right? It's the gray period between when the, when the legislation's passed and the, and the rules are in place and, and it's very clear how the yeah. program is going to work. Um, during that time, tips are still coming in and, and being actively investigated, but companies don't particularly know how exactly it's going to work or how it's going to impact them. But it is important, important for anyone who is subject to that legislation to think about it now. One interesting nuance that's in the rules that, that, I'm sorry, that's in the legislation that I'm going to be interested to see how the rules, um, resolve it. It, it says that tips that are given to an employer um, can be award eligible. I mean, that's different than the SEC's program where it says that, you know, you have to give the information to the SEC. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to be very interested to see how that plays out. But, you know, it does make me wonder, well, what does that mean for um, firms, you know, now that are subject to this legislation? I mean, what what obligation do they have here when it comes to tracking or, 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 you know, keeping track of, of tips that are coming in. And it's something that me and, and, you know, partners at my firm have been thinking a lot about, about this legislation. Um, you know, one other thing I would note is that each company, each institution might operate in different industries that are subject to different regulatory schemes. So, um, a company could be subject to the SEC's whistleblower program as well as the AML Act. And other statutes. And then, of course, you have the retaliation protections of SOX, of Dodd-Frank, um, of other, um, of other, uh, 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 rules as well. And, and so it is very difficult to navigate, um, very difficult to navigate for companies. And, and that's just in the U.S., right? And then now let's think about internationally. If companies have international operations, um, that's another another layer of complexity added on. Um, there is that is the new EU directive on whistleblowing as well um, that companies have to be aware of. So so it's not only their U.S. operations. Companies also have to think about those um, international operations and what what legislation they're subject to as well. Because as Kurt noted right at the top of the program, the SEC has received tips. Um, I actually think it's up to 130 countries internationally. And so tips do come in yeah. from outside the U.S. And, and, um, the SEC has reported that, that there were foreign nationals who have gotten paid under the program. I think it was 19, um, last I remember. So, so there's a lot of good intelligence coming from outside of the, outside of the U.S. And, and, and companies need to be thinking about those employees as well. We want to transition, Jane, into talking a little bit about some of the interesting or even, God forbid, fun uh, stories (laughs) from your work as the chief of the Office of the Whistleblower at the SEC. And one of the things that stuck out in the past few weeks, there was a recent order from the commission that denied a whistleblower an award claim, which, you know, is is kind of run of the mill. But also the SEC barred that claimant from participating in the program in the future. 
What can you tell us about this kind of case? And then are there others, you know, without getting into the details or, or you know, making people uh, known in terms of the whistleblowing, what other kind of interesting stories did you see in your time uh, as chief of the Office of the Whistleblower? Yes, I did see this, the order that you're referring to. And, and I think it's the first time that the commission has used the new rule that allows the SEC to bar a claimant from participating in the program if they submit three or more um, non-meritorious claims for award. And it was something that I affectionately called the three strikes rule um, because it really did feel like, um, you know, three, three, three strikes was enough. Um, that, 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 that staff was incredibly overworked going through award claims that were clearly not meritorious on their face, right? So someone would not put in a tip at all or put in a tip and on the very, very same day, submit, you know, 25 applications for awards. Wow. Now, there's no way, right, that that tip could have possibly worked into an investigation and enforcement action the very same day it was submitted. And and, and so it really did just tie up the works for um, the Office of the Whistleblower staff. And it was incredibly, incredibly frustrating. So in order for the programs to run smoothly and efficiently, I actually think that that rule is a really good one and, and is incredibly, incredibly important. I mean, in, in the past, there were two individuals who were barred, um, not under this new rule. And it was a much longer process to do, to do it. It's a much more streamlined approach under the three strikes rule. Um, but in those instances, I think in the very first person who the SEC barred, I think that individual submitted over, over well over a hundred um, applications for awards, and so and so it is something that um, can be very um, time consuming and, and difficult. And as a government agency, even if it's on its face something um, that you know can't possibly can't possibly um, lead to an award, you know the, the the agency still has to review that, have it go through the process, and 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 have the individual be able to ask for reconsideration um, and, and issue a final order of the commission. And, and and even if it was something ridiculous on its face, um, it still it still was something that the agency had to had to grapple with. So I think the three strikes rule um, is a good one. You know, Kurt, it's not often that we can get to see Aesop's fables writ large into the securities world, but it sounds like the boy who cried wolf might be uh, an application here that, you know, we could turn around to the next generation and say, yes, we're telling you these stories. Listen, it really happens in practice, even at the height of the securities world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Jane, I'm going to ask you a question that I, you know, I don't think you know it's coming, and we'll just see. Uh, uh, we'll see what you think. We we talked a little bit with Matt Stock about this, um, uh, you know, a year and a half ago. There have been some pretty interesting ads uh, for for whistleblower firms, including some I think that were in the movies um, in in New York for a while. So I don't know if you're aware of any of these ads, or or if you have a favorite one that that came on your radar at some point while you were at the commission. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I haven't thought about that in ages. But yes, there was one, I think an, an individual ran ads in like the, I, I know at least in a New York movie theater, <laughs> I think it was for, for something like SEC. Snitch. I, I think it was SEC, SEC Snitch. Snitch. Yeah. SEC Snitch. That's right. Yeah. Featured in episode yeah. six, yeah. That did not... Um, that that just didn't feel like a good way to attract <laughs> attract whistleblowers, but <laughs> but you know, um, that's just my opinion. <laughs> Meritorious claimants yeah, well, only. I guess we won't be <laughs> we won't be seeing any of that from Arnold and Porter anytime that's soon. Right. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. We represent companies, so no. <laughs> awesome. You know, Jane, thanks so much for joining us today. Any final thoughts for our listeners as, uh, you know, you continue your transition uh, away from, from serving with the commission and, and start to practice? Uh, we've talked a little bit about things you're looking for, but any, any parting wisdom for our listeners? I, I think just, you know, I, I'll, I'll end where I started, which is um, just recognizing that whistleblowers are, are here to stay. And it is something that 
the sooner companies em embrace embrace whistleblowers and learn to, to work with them, the better it's going to be um, ultimately for them and their employees um, because the SEC is, is you know, giving a lot of signals <laughs> that they're going to aggressively pursue whistleblower tips. And so um, better, better to get uh, your ducks in a row and um, get internal reporting on the right track and take seriously those whistleblower tips because the SEC certainly will. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Jane Norberg of Arnold & Porter. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.